0: Welcome to the Heart Rate Variability Podcast. Each week, we talk about heart rate variability and how it can be used to improve your overall health and wellness. Please consider the information in this podcast for your informational use and not medical advice. Please see your medical provider to apply any of the strategies outlined in this episode. Heart Rate Variability Podcast is a production of Optimal LLC and Optimal HRV. Check us out at OptimalHRV.com. Please enjoy the show. All right, all right. Well, welcome to the podcast. And today I am sitting here with Miss Teresa. And um, and if you can go ahead, I want you to introduce to the uh to the optimal HRV world to the uh, heart rate variability podcast world. Uh, who you are, what you do, and then we will we will dive in from there.
1: Sure. So my name is Teresa Lero. I am an associate professor in psychology at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and I'm a clinical psychologist by trade. Um, So in that role, I'm in the doctoral program um, and I conduct research in addiction, anxiety, and stress broadly. And I really focus a lot of my work on tobacco, so cigarette smoking and anxiety and the comorbidity between the two um and i also have a small private practice
0: oh awesome okay well uh well well first of all pleasure to have you on um and i didn't realize yeah. that you also practice uh, i do a, okay very cool um well i guess i i guess practicing is the best way to learn right um and i uh, and we get to see that our our theories actually play out right Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Scientist practitioner. It it definitely, um, the model there is the idea that your clinical work really informs your research and vice versa. Right. And, and you're really kind of bouncing in between the two, um, throughout your, your career.
0: Indeed. And, uh, and, and I think, um, you learn so much from your patients, uh, too, right. Uh, you will, uh, Always approach a patient and you're thinking of all these high level science things, right? Uh, you know, bouncing back and forth in your head and what the research says about Absolutely. this and that. And then your patient will make a connection for you that you wouldn't have made in a thousand years just because they off the cuff say, Oh, yeah. And, you know, I notice every time that happens, this also happens. And you go, Absolutely. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's always really exciting when you have a name for it, right? Um, but it's equally exciting when you're like, Ah, I'm noticing this new pattern amongst this group of clients, right? And and I don't think we know a lot about what this is or know what to label it or have even really thought about investigating it. So definitely love that.
0: Yes. And and then, uh, and then smart people like you go ahead and do a research study on it and publish something (laughs) and put a name to it, right?
1: (laughs) Right. Hopefully. Yeah.
0: Um, so, so you are in a very unique world. Um, you talk about tobacco and anxiety, um, and I imagine the two go hand in hand, right? Because um, we think of people who uh, who have who have anxiety as people who uh, who might take a vice like smoking, uh, you know, and might do something like using tobacco or other things uh, for that matter. Um, so, how do those two interconnect?
1: Yeah. It's interesting, right? I think what you're alluding to is this idea of a self-medication hypothesis, right? We often um, think of people who use substances, people who are trying to self-medicate certain symptoms away, whether it be depression, anxiety, maybe even physical pain rather than emotional disturbance, right? And I think what is so unique about smoking... um, is the idea that, you know, smoking is actually a stimulant, right? If you you really think about it, right? So you're actually activating, right, your sympathetic nervous system. You're not actually relaxing it when you smoke. Um, But this idea that smoking can mitigate and alleviate anxiety, and and it does have uh, other effects that I won't get into, but primarily smoking is um nicotine is a stimulant and we can agree on that right um but as you smoke repeatedly you end up putting your body in a situation where it's going through withdrawal again and again and again right and that withdrawal is actually characterized by a lot of symptoms that overlap with anxiety right so really the withdrawal um, can exacerbate existing anxiety or it can manifest as irritability and anxiety, right? And you smoke to alleviate it, right? So really, you're not necessarily smoking to get rid of anxiety, right? But you're often smoking to get rid of withdrawal, right? And then through those repeated learning trials, smokers start to kind of automatically rely on smoking as this automated way of managing any type of distress, whether it be withdrawal or something similar to withdrawal. Right, this feels uncomfortable, and the way that I usually manage this distress is via smoking.
0: Well, that that is so interesting, um, and, and I think uh, probably a lot of uh, listeners out there don't even realize that that uh, you know smoking, I, you know, that, that is a stimulant to the central nerve, uh, to the, to the nervous system, right. That we are activating yeah. the, uh, the sympathetic nervous system. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people just automatically correlate that as, well, I'm going to smoke to calm down. Um, Absolutely. and I, uh, and, and that's so enlightening to say that, you know, and go, oh yes, I- indeed that is what's happening. Um, but then, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, you can uh, also you know think about the movies where uh, you, know, you have the person anxiously smoking the cigarette, right? When anything uh, when anything goes wrong, so that's what I was thinking of as you yeah. were uh, as you were talking about that. Yeah. Um. Now, why is it uh, cigarettes that tend to be used in that regard uh, rather than something like um, smoking a tobacco pipe or smoking a cigar um, or anything of that nature? Is that just because cigarettes are the most readily available thing or convenient? Yeah.
1: I really think so, right? I think that um, cigarettes are so accessible. They're already, most of the time, um, in a very usable format, right? You could even um, buy what we call loose at the store, right? You can buy one. You don't necessarily have to buy a pack. Um, Yeah, it's just easy, right? Although I do think that all tobacco products have a little bit of a ritual component around them as well that can also be really rewarding or really reinforcing, right? You can imagine somebody who likes to roll theirs or um, who likes to, you know, put it in their pipe. Maybe they have a few different pipes. Maybe they have a favorite one. Um, But there are a lot of rituals um, around the use of it. Um, You know, I think we can also start to think about, I think, today on the news they are saying cigarette smoking has finally reached an all-time low um but electronic cigarette use has gone up something like six to nine percent in the past year right and again think about convenience and ease of use right so you know people smoke typically many times throughout the day if they're a regular daily smoker, right? So repeated bouts of nicotine withdrawal, you can envision the level of nicotine rising in your blood throughout the day. Um, but there are a lot of rules about where you can smoke, right? So you kind of smoke your cigarette and then you go back to whatever it was you're doing. When we think about electronic nicotine, it's a whole new game, right? Because you can kind of take a few puffs there, you can take a few puffs here, right? Right? Um, you can sneak them in, in a public setting. Um, so really the profile of how people even use e-cigarettes is, is different than combustible and kind of going off on a tangent, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I mean, and that's a, a topic that must be, uh, talked about as well, because it, it is the reality of today. The, um, the e-cigarettes, the vape boxes, uh, you know, that, um, that you see everywhere, which I know I have... Horrible, uh, you know, d- damaging effects, um, and uh, and all of these things that we now have, uh, you know, again as these readily available vices. Um, mm-hmm. But one thing that you talked about was uh, was some of the some of the uh, habits, some of the rituals that go along with with smoking. Um, so I, d- I know something that uh, that is always kind of a, a back and forth. Is it that people are so addicted to the smoking, to the tobacco, uh, to the nicotine, or is it the habits, the rituals that go along with it? Um, and, and granted, I know obviously there's both, right? But, um, but what do you see? And then, and then as well, I you know, I, I know a lot of those things are, you know, will take the person out of the situation and suddenly they don't have that drive for their addiction anymore. Um, so can you uh, can you speak to that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so your question is that you know how do we think about parsing out what part of it using nicotine really has to do with nicotine and, and withdrawal and the actual um, pharmacological effects, right? Um, versus the sort of the habitual learning, right, cognitive component, right? And I would say they're both really important, right? Um, So we often do, when we think about quitting, want to make sure that we are providing people with some type of replacement um, to help with the genuine physiological effects of withdrawal via nicotine right? So anything like nicotine replacement patch or gum or the lozenge, right? A lot of evidence to suggest that that's really, really helpful, at least initially, right? So really a lot of that physiological stuff is what's going to get in the way um, during the early part of a quit attempt, right? But as you move into the quit attempt, you really need to get a handle on the habit, right? And the automaticity and the the kind of reliance on nicotine um, and this tendency to often light up and be puffing it almost subconsciously, right? You know, it's so automatic, whether it be tied to your morning coffee or I'm out at the bar drinking, right? And that is the cue for using it. Or, you know, it's just the thing that I do when I feel uncomfortable when I feel distressed. It's a way for me to take a break from my day, right? It's what I do um, in the middle of my day at work, right? During my lunch break, right? All of that has to do with context, right? There are a variety of contexts in which we use substances where we're more likely to use, less likely to use, and really breaking down those associations is so important when we think about quitting, and especially when you think about anxiety right so how can you tap into your anxiety label your anxiety um express it um but also cope with it in a different way right how do we interrupt that cycle
0: yeah that is a uh, such interesting uh things that you have to uh you know go, go around and think about um it, so w- one thing that always puzzles me and i don't want to keep marching down this road of you know uh, cigarette addiction and everything because that's not you know not what right. we're, talking we're talking about, about
1: today. Our HRV. <laughs> um, uh, but HRV. Uh,
0: but i've always been curious about um what what is the difference between somebody who can go out smoke cigarettes you know while they're you know out one night and be perfectly happy the rest of their life never smoke a cigarette i uh, yeah. and same with a person who can go out drinking and never have a craving for alcohol you know um what makes that addictive personality what uh what is that um yeah. and, and uh and why why is it so different amongst us
1: yeah that is the million dollar question
0: <laughs> right yeah. like
1: who are these people that are able to say I am done and never touch a substance of abuse again and who are these people who will, lapse and relapse it time and time again and just to really struggle um, to make that long-term quit attempt and, and to make it stick, right? Um, so many factors go into it, right? Yeah. There are sex difference. there are sex differences rather, there are um, socioeconomic and educational differences we see in terms of youth, right? Um, But I think a lot of this kind of uh, gets down to psychological vulnerabilities, right? Um, Whether they be more biological, right? Um, More nature, if you want to think about nature versus nurture, or or kind of environmental, right? Circumstantial, right? Um, But a lot of it, I think, is at the level of, not necessarily what people's circumstances are and the, the, the level of stress that they're under, right? But how they manage it, right? So um, temperamental differences in terms of emotion regulation, distress tolerance, a, ability to tolerate uncertainty, right? These are all the things that we're really, really interested in it's better... Um, measuring, right, whether it be through uh, physiological things like heart rate variability, when we think about emotion regulation, or self-report measures, or behavioral measures, right, we want to figure out what are these underlying vulnerabilities that really explain variability in how dependent people are on a substance, their Willingness to quit, the confidence they have in quitting, and, and whether or not they are able to quit. And then the question is how can we modify these psychological vulnerabilities to help people have a better quit attempt, right? So, you know, maybe they have these innate or trait like vulnerabilities, but we still think that they're malleable, right? And we still think that the environment affects them, right? Um, there's something about the environment, this idea of epigenetics, right? The the different vulnerabilities that we have are activated based on the experiences that we have, right? So then how do we mitigate? How do we kind of reverse the impact of the environment on these vulnerabilities that people have to to help them be functioning better?
0: So you went uh, exactly where I was hoping you would go, uh, which is... um, uh which is uh, like you said about this, right? What what makes somebody more more vulnerable? Um, and it really does start literally from fetal uh, from fetal development, right? Um, yeah. What I, and granted, you know, I, I don't know about vulnerability and, uh, and addiction. That's not my uh, specialty uh, by any means. Um, but uh, but when we talk about their autonomic nervous system and how well they can regulate themselves mm-hmm. and their environment. Right. Um, and that all starts from everything that happened to you from the moment you were, you know, this little cell, right. That started, be, yep. that started dividing, right. Until this moment that you are here on earth. Right. Um, yep. And, uh, and of course that is our our autonomic nervous system, uh, guiding that whole thing. And, uh, and heart rate variability, here we go, yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, our, is our measure here. So in theory, would somebody who is more prone to addiction have a lower functioning autonomic nervous system, and would we see that in their uh, in their HRV? Now, I I I don't yeah. know that uh, this is answerable, but yeah, go go ahead. Yes, yeah. please.
1: No, you know, it's such a good question, and we need to do more work in that area, right? And and really. What David's asking is that the classic chicken or the egg, right? And uh, um, some of the time we see these things are bi directional, right? Um, but there is some evidence that individuals who initiate smoking as adolescents and continue to smoke, right? So the ones that actually develop a habit out of it that they do have lower heart rate variability, right? And on the other hand, we know that smoking diminishes heart rate variability. So we've got this evidence of a potential bi-directional relationship where um, the the lower your HRV is, potentially the greater risk you're at of developing problematic use, right? And your youth is going to worsen that, right? Which might put you at risk of having more difficulty putting. Uh,
0: very interesting and, and awesome that that, that that does exist. And then uh and then when we tie in the anxiety piece with that. Yeah. Um, now somebody uh somebody with a lower HRV, uh, we know doesn't deal with stress as good as somebody with a higher HRV, right? And that's stress of yeah. any any kind. Um so um so that person again, right, would be would be more likely to find a vice to help them deal with that stress yep. because they can't do that internally, correct?
1: Yep. Yep. Exactly. Right. So we know that the folks who are have more difficulty managing stress. Um, you know people who actually have diagnoses, right? Uh, whether it be panic disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, we are seeing lower heart rate variability in these individuals, right? And the comorbidity between anxiety pathology and substance use is really, really high, right? So just as one example, um smoking rates are now below 10% in adults in the United States, right? Down from, you know, 40 to 45% in the 60s and 70s. Amazing, right? Unfortunately, when we look at individuals with mental health problems, especially severe mental illness, um, like schizophrenia, you see that, you know, 40 to 50% of them are smoking, right? Um, And then you look at the class of disorders like anxiety, um, which is really important given anxiety disorders are the biggest class of disorders, right? More people are affected by anxiety than something like schizophrenia, right? Um, And we still have pretty high rates of smoking, right? Depending on the disorder. Um, And all of this is even more important because when people are using something like nicotine, and the same goes for alcohol, when you're using a substance of abuse that has an effect on your autonomic nervous system, whether it be stimulant or depressant, right? You are actually messing up your physiological milieu, right? So you are um, adding something from the outside, right? This kind of exogenous effect, right? That is having an effect on your blood pressure, your heart rate, your respiration, right? And in a way, you're kind of causing this repeated... Stress or wear and tear on your nervous system by drinking regularly, by using tobacco regularly. And all of that breaks down your HPA access, so your stress system, and things like heart rate variability, right? So the combination of anxiety and substance use is going to lead to even worse the heart rate variability
0: that's um that's quite profound and and you know with uh with what you're saying uh and all this um as well it, it's shocking that that I uh, you know that cigarette smoking is at an all-time low as we just reach the other side of a pandemic where we know anxiety is at an all-time high yeah. um and you know in all mental disorders uh you know for that for that matter um so i uh, is it is it that there is also a lot of other uh, substance abuse going on? And that's why, uh, you know, just just that cigarettes get bashed so hard that, uh, <laughs> that that one is not rising up?
1: Yeah, that is such a good question. And I think these questions are going to be the emerging questions, right? And I wish I could fit here and fire off to you. Ah, but alcohol use, right? But I don't know off the top of my head. Um, what we've seen right from an epidemiological perspective, um, what has happened with alcohol use over the past few years, right? But we know that anxiety has skyrocketed. There is some evidence, right, of greater alcohol use and problems, but I don't know what, um, what the epidata data say quite yet. Um, but I do think when we think about tobacco that you know, there is a lot of stigma around it. And um, uh, there's been a lot of policy work that has been a major driver of um, pushing rates of youth down. Right. Um, so that's been super effective. Right. But I think, you know, paradoxically, we've got to think of how big tobacco is working around some of this by coming up with new products like um, electronic cigarettes, right, and and targeting um, teens and young adults, right, and using things like flavor um, to increase the reinforcing effects of it.
0: Yeah, 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 so so interesting, Um, and and yeah, with uh, with everything you're saying there, you know, uh, numbers-wise, too, you know, we go from a our doctors in our government endorsing the use of cigarettes, right? When you talk about, you know, in the fifties and whatnot. And then, uh, and now we're, we're at a place where it is completely 180. Right. Um, and yeah. thankfully, you know, um, there is so much in place, um, you know, discouraging the use of cigarettes and, uh, and the price alone. Like uh, I look right. at that, uh, the taxes on cigarettes and you go, oh my gosh, like you, how can you even afford that? Uh,
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, some um, states, they're much worse than others, but you look at the correlation between those that taxes and prevalence of youth, right? And uh, it's astounding, right? You know, um, the tri-state area where I live, youth is really, really low, right? But if we look down at like Mississippi, right? um going to be a quite different picture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting. Um. Okay. So so let's go Uh. and let's talk about heart rate variability and how you yeah. use that uh, within your therapies um yes. so you're you're looking at the autonomic nervous system uh with everything that you do and um and as you know HRV is, is the best way to measure that um so well let's start with what what do you use to measure um and how do you design studies around this what's your therapy um with uh with any of this uh,
1: so we are really really interested in heart rate variability um and it, how it might be targeted to help people quit smoking especially individuals who are high in emotional distress right um so let's talk about the treatment end first so that's kind of the direction i'm going in right yes. um so when we think about heart rate variability, as some of your listeners probably know, we really think of it as um, an integrated physiological marker. When I say integrated, I'm thinking about the vagus nerve and um, it reflecting uh, communication between central nervous system and peripheral peripheral nervous system, right? So um, the vagus nerve really provides a feedback loop between the two, right, Um, and in that way, we've found, again, kind of thinking about your central nervous system and cognition, right, Um, and peripheral, kind of that, your physiology, right, like heart rate, respiration, blood pressure, um, that it is correlated with our ability to regulate not only our physiology, but our emotions, um, the way we are able to think and plan and execute behavior and um, even things like social sensitivity, right? And how we relate to other people. So heart rate variability is critical to self-regulation. So when I say self-regulation, we're talking about your physiology, your cognition, your emotions, right? Um, and and your social world, right? Um, so, if our smokers, especially those that have greater levels of emotional distress, have low heart rate variability, we can hypothesize that when they make a quit attempt, they're going to be somewhat impeded um, by poor self-regulation, right? Because when those triggers to smoke come out, come up, whether they be withdrawal, whether they be um, emotional distress, whether they even be external, right? I made a plan to not use tobacco when I go to this wedding, right, Um, but I'm not able to kind of execute that plan or stay focused on the plan, right, or my emotions, my cognition um, is getting hijacked in part because of my heart rate variability, right? So we're kind of thinking about all these things um, and the question being, if we're able to give people a tool that is going to result in acute improvements in their heart rate variability, potentially in the moment, right, um, but also a tool that they can practice over time to have long-term improvements in their heart rate variability, are they going to be better able to make a quit attempt? And Is that going to be because um, they're experiencing less emotional distress? Is it going to be because they have a tool that they can now use kind of in the moment um, to manage emotional distress? Or is it going to be because we actually see that the people that use this tool have greater improvements in their heart rate variability over time? Um, following a quit attempt than those that don't have that tool.
0: Okay. I know I, I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm sure everybody listening as well. Uh, what's the tool? Yeah.
1: So, it's tool. Okay. <laughs> so we actually manipulate heart rate variability through respiration. So we're, awesome. we're really thinking about respiratory sinus arrhythmia. So this idea that when we breathe in, our heart rate, our pacemaker, right? Our vagus nerve, right? The break that is constantly holding our heart place heart rate in place, it kind of releases a little bit, right? So your heart rate's gonna speed up when you breathe in, right? And then it's gonna slow down when you breathe out, right? Um and, and again this is the idea of respiratory sinus arrhythmia, right? It's it's changes in the heart rhythm that occur and can be manipulated as a function of your respiration. And what's really, really cool about that is that we all naturally, and I'm sure David has talked about this, um, might take deep breaths or you might hear that taking a deep breath is really helpful in terms of relaxation. Yawning is a way that we take a deep breath, right? Um, sighing, all these things. Um, but if you change your breathing, if you slow it down to a prescribed rate where you basically get synchrony between your respiration and your heart rate, you get what's called a resonance effect that, um, resonance is this idea of like almost like reverberation or this exponential effect um, within your body's physiology because you are syncing, you're aligning your heart rate and your blood pressure, right? Um, And you're doing all of this again by manipulating your breath. So on average, if you slow your breathing down to a pace of about um, six breaths per minute, right? That's, That's on average across all adults, right? So you can imagine Breathing in for five seconds, breathing out for five seconds, you are going to get your breathing and your heart rate in better sync with each other. You're going to maximize your heart rate variability and not want to get too far into the weeds, but you also start to see effects on what's called your baroreflex. So these um, receptors in your blood vessels that fire um, to kind of help control. Blood pressure, right? And of course, that is going to have immediate feedback on heart rate, right? So your whole system is really kind of working at maximal capacity when you target your resonance breathing. And again, on average, it's about six breaths per minute. Um, But when we do this as an intervention, we really um, tailor it. So it can be anywhere from 4.5 breaths per minute up to 6.5 breaths per minute, depending on the individual. And we really have them looking at their physiology while they're doing it, right? So it's a biofeedback. They're actually looking at how well their breathing um, can increase their heart rate and decrease their heart rate and really trying to kind of maximize these amplitudes um, through, through the respiration.
0: So that is absolutely amazing, and um, and I I would highly endorse that tool as well. Um, <laughs> so uh, so I uh, and you may not know this actually, um, but shameless plug, we are yeah. the only mobile application with a residence frequency assessment on our app, um, and and we use uh, low frequency um as as our guide for uh yep. which uh which for those of you listening um that's essentially a measure of baroreceptor um, function. So we use that as our guide for the residence frequency rate. Um, awesome. and uh and that was all designed by uh by uh Ina uh Ina Kazan um out of Harvard uh, and she um so she developed that whole portion of the app so that patients could do a resonance frequency assessment on the app and then do the resonance frequency breathing um at their specific pace and do the um and do the actual exercises right there within the app. Uh so That's we do have great. the ability to do that. Um and yeah. yeah and and it's just amazing. Uh the more and more that I learn about resonance frequency breathing, um, the more and more you go, oh my gosh, everybody needs to be doing this. Yeah. Uh, and uh and like you said, six breaths per minute tends to be tends to be on average what most people fall at um but as the research shows right if you are if you aren't doing it at your actual rate you would miss the benefit
1: absolutely yeah There are really really um great empirical studies that have documented this and it's it's remarkable yeah you you can just miss the mark right um and it to really make it work. Um having an app like the one David is plugging here is so important, right? If you don't have other tools to really pinpoint what that is for you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um so it's 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 really cool. It's such a powerful tool. And um and you know I could go on and on about uh, about resonance frequency of breathing, uh, respiratory sinus rhythm and all that. Um, but what do you see happen? So, um, yeah. so we know that there is profound health benefits from doing this breathing, um, you know, in in multitudes uh, of ways. But what do you see specifically with uh, with these patients that you work with?
1: Yeah. So with our smokers, we are really employing this tool before their quit attempt, right? We want them to have it as a tool. Um, and we teach them just about a week ahead of their quit attempt, right? If we also don't want to prolong a quit attempt that they're ready to make. Um, but we develop it as a tool that they can use. And, uh, you know, I do think that it can feel a little bit tricky or let me be more descriptive. It can feel a little bit uncomfortable to shift your breathing, Right. And one of the things we really want to be careful of, and for any of you folks out there who are trying to learn this on your own, is we really wanna make sure that people don't inadvertently um, hyperventilate, right? When we slow our breath down a lot, we almost have this immediate compensatory reaction to take a really kind of deep breath or take too much, air, right, the volume of of our inhalation might increase because it feels like we're not getting enough, right, because they're really slowing it down. So we use a lot of tools to make sure that they're doing it the right way and keeping their breath kind of shallow while they're slowing it down. And what we see, um, and I hope this is okay to say on the podcast as an addiction scientist, but it almost feels like you have had a glass of wine, right? The way that you trigger your parasympathetic system by manipulating the breath feels really relaxing, right? Um, But also people report feeling very alert, right? So it's kind of this sweet spot of just like you feel good and relaxed and chill, right, but also able to kind of focus, right? Um, So people love to do it in the morning um, when they're about to begin their day. They love to do it at night before bedtime to kind of unwind. And we have had so many smokers report using it when they have a craving, right, or even Using it throughout the day. Once they quit during those usual times that they would take a 15-minute smoke break, so people really like it. Um, You know, I, I, it's always so rewarding when you have those patients in your trial who just rave about it, and you see them practicing. really frequently right and they they really view it as a tool that they'll continue to use long term
0: that is so amazing uh ah, and and so cool to hear uh and i can definitely speak to that as well that um you you are in um, a very unique zone uh after after you've done your rf breathing for for a, an extended period of time um yeah, yeah it, does, it does put you in a very unique place um yeah. a great place yeah, but uh yeah. um so something that, you know, as you were talking, uh something that you know made me think. So uh so I've seen it with my patients. Um, I know I've heard Ina talk about it as well, um, is that it's hard to do this breathing exercise and, in actually doing the uh you know the 14 minute assessment uh to find out what your resonance frequency rate is. That's not easy at all. No. Um, in fact, no. it's very challenging. And I've had patients who aren't smokers not be able to complete the um not be able to complete the assessment because yeah. it was difficult. So I can only imagine that somebody who has a decreased lung capacity as a smoker yeah. is going to struggle with this more. So do you run into that issue?
1: Yeah, definitely. And Ideally, we have people practicing for fifteen minutes a day, but we tell them they can break it into five-minute bins. Okay. Um, you know, with five minutes being kind of the lower end of things, and and especially when we are trying to identify the resonance frequency, we're keeping all of this in mind. Um, you know, there can be practice effects too, where you know maybe because it's the last frequency that we're checking. Um, Feels the best to them because they finally have got it down pat, right? Um, so, we want to be keeping all of this in mind. It can be really uncomfortable. And a lot of our smokers report that it gets easier once they quit. Um, and, it, you know, I have to look at our data. We're just finishing our trial now. Um, it'll be interesting to see what percent of our um, sample. Uh, had kind of an adjusted resonance frequency before versus after their quit attempt. Um, because I can imagine it, it shouldn't, right? Based on what we know, but this is a unique population. We haven't studied them before. And we know that once you quit, your your heart rate variability does change just from quitting, right? Going from smoking to using the patch, going from the patch to having no nic- nicotine in your body at all um so it's possible that that there's a certain percentage of people in our study whose the resonance frequency appeared to be um six right but then when they quit we noticed it kind of shifted down to 5.5 um but yeah absolutely it is tougher in this population um but it does get easier once they kind of get some days of abstinence behind them
0: yeah uh, that is uh that's really cool and interesting. So I uh, so I always um you, know, I think about everything. I know I've said this before in the podcast too, but uh, but I think about everything whenever somebody says something doesn't change in biology or this is how it is, I always say that's just because we haven't figured it out yet. We don't um, yeah it, so uh so with uh, resonance frequency rate, it is it is said um you know, and I know you know this. I'm saying this for the uh, for the listeners. It is said that whatever your resonance frequency rate is, that's what it is for your entire life. Um, and uh, and I always think that that can't be right. Um, and, but it's based on the size of your vascular tree. Um and um, it, so in theory, if you're a full grown adult, it shouldn't change. Um, yeah. but I always think, well, what if you get really big over, over a lifetime. Right. Um, yeah. whether that's, you know, obesity or whether that is through muscular work, uh, either way you're, you're increasing the vascular tree and yes. vice versa. Um, you know, if you shrink down, we are also decreasing that, um, as, uh, as vessels do decrease in size and quantity. Um, yeah.
1: can I jump in?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Please. Um,
1: yeah. So I just have a, a funny anecdote. Um, you know, as a researcher, it's so important to go through any experiment that you're doing, whether it be just to make sure you understand what the participant is exper- experiencing, training, etc. So I actually went through my own trial when I was pregnant. Oh, and blood volume changes drastically when you're pregnant. Um, And at the time, my interventionist, one of my graduate students, I don't think she knew I was pregnant yet. Um, and we're doing a lot of things over Zoom. Um, but I talked to Paul there about this and we have a lot of my data and we need to look at it because it, I don't know if we have enough for a case study, but it would get at a lot of what David is asking, right? Did my resonance frequency change during my pregnancy? as a function of blood volume, right? So when you're pregnant, your blood volume, um, what is it like 20% or more? Um, but yeah, I, we wanna look at that because I think that these little case studies that we don't know, right? Um, they're so important and can be so informative as researchers and interventionists to, to kind of get a handle on.
0: Yes, absolutely, and uh, and, and uh, my gosh, yeah, talk about the uh, the most dramatic case of uh, of going up and down in every way, right? Uh, that is okay. that is what every mother has experienced. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So so indeed, uh, that would be so cool to see because without a doubt, I'd imagine that your your rate changed um, uh, yeah. throughout that, uh, and and that is you know like you were saying about you know the people in your research study too, like uh, you know that. That they are having a physiological change. So, yeah. so do we see this happen over here too? Um, yeah. yeah, and this uh, both. I uh, am actually the um, the the pregnancy uh, as well. It would that would be so interesting to dig into. Um, so, yeah, Absolute just
1: loop back.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. And then we need. Uh, then we're going to need to get a uh, a whole bunch of women uh, before they get pregnant, and then uh, and then during and after, right? <laughs>
1: Absolutely. see, see know, what happens I think, I think hrv all day for everything right i, it, I thought about it so much and, and practiced a lot when i was pregnant and and thinking about labor and and all of that um and i don't think anybody has done anything in that area again but um it, yet but yeah whoever's out there listening
0: <laughs> open so,
1: area
0: so with hrv and pregnancy um the only thing that i've was seen on that is, uh, is it, uh, unfortunately, HRV goes down with pregnancy <laughs> and, uh, and the more pregnancies that you have, uh, right. The more babies that you, that you have, um, the lower your HRV, uh, be, dips with the pregnancy. Um, now wow. I'm not sure about the bounce back on that. Yeah. Um, but that's, uh, that's, you know, and it makes sense, right. That your body is, you have an extra stress on you, mm-hmm. obviously. Right. Um, so yeah, it would make sense that your HRV would drop down and then, um, and then with multiple pregnancies, uh, you're going to dip even lower. Um, but yeah, I, I'm actually uncertain on the, uh, on the bounce back yeah. portion of that.
1: Yeah. yeah. So interesting.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, again, uh, there's, I, with HRV, it's so cool because it is, um, you know, by no means new, right? But it's so readily available now um, yeah. that the potential for use in research um, has just gone through the roof. So it's a it's such a cool place to be, uh, and such a cool field to be within. Um, it
1: really is. Even ten years ago, right, um, we wouldn't be doing anything wireless, um, and if we did, it wouldn't be too reliable, right? Yes. Different,
0: yes, indeed. different worlds now <laughs> a very different world and it's like every six months you see a dramatic jump in technology and you go and you go oh my gosh this is possible yeah. now!" <laughs> yeah I, we can get respirations from a ppg reader right like it's uh you know it's um it just things like that just blow my mind um but i anyway um i i wanted to ask so with your participants, are you measuring their heart rate variability on a daily basis, multiple times per day? Or is this just a check-in like once a week when they're, uh, how how does that go? And how often are they doing their RF breathing? Um,
1: Great question. Um, so in our study, in part because of COVID, in part, um, to actually make the study feasible, we don't have them come into our lab too frequently. So they come in before their quit attempt, um, they learn everything in person, um, and we use um, you know, pretty well validated close to medical grade equipment right? to to make sure that we're getting a a really good handle on their baseline physiology. And then we measure it again one month after their quit attempt and three months after their quit attempt. In between, um, when they're actually doing the intervention, um, which we do um, using basically telehealth, um, they do have a device uh, that, clips to their ear where where they're able to basically use the PPG to to estimate respiration right um and, and look at heart rate so they can see that in real time and we measure it um and we can actually extract the data using Cubio. um but we don't we're not planning to use that as primary outcome right so we have all of that but because the technology is good, um, but not perfect, right? Um, we we won't be using that in terms of our main outcome publications, um, but we do have have all of that data, which is um, weekly or twice weekly with their interventionist, and then in addition, they're asked um, to practice up to 15 minutes a day, and they're incentivized to practice 15 minutes a day throughout the entire duration of the study. Um, There is a lot of variability there,
0: (laughs) you know, as we
1: see um, in in humans, right? Not just research participants, right? Um, So there is quite a lot of variability there, but that's kind of the, the gold standard that we're going for.
0: Okay, well, very cool, and and I can only imagine that the correlation is there—that the those who practice more see more benefit.
1: Yeah. So, um, in our open trial, our first open trial, which was just an n of ten, again, we expect everybody to have an improvement in heart rate variability, but we saw. Um, significantly greater improvements in heart rate variability in the people that stayed in the intervention and fully quit, right? So, you know, we're looking for a, a signal of of this with with these um, initial studies, so that we can do some randomized controlled trials, hopefully in the near future.
0: Oh, so cool! Um, so so for those people listening, you know, I know there's a um you know, a lot of, uh, a lot out there right now about, you know, we, we want to get our HRV to, to go up. We want to see our HRV increase. Right. And, um, it, and what kind of an increase are we seeing, seeing in those kinds of people when we see them, when you see somebody before, you know, as they're, when they're, uh, when they do the before test, when they are a smoker, um, to afterwards, when they have gone through the RF breathing, when they have quit smoking, um, what kind of a jump are we seeing in HRE?
1: Yeah, it's such a good question. So first off, I think it's important to note how different something like respiratory sinus arrhythmia looks in a healthy young adult versus a smoker, right? The um, so if we're thinking about respiratory sinus arrhythmia, the the metric being MS squared, right? Um We might see something like, I don't know, six to 10 in a healthy person. In our smokers, we're often seeing two to five. Wow. Yes. Wow. Um, And these are smokers who are pretty healthy otherwise. We have a lot of exclusionary criteria because we want to ensure that um, they don't have other um, health comorbidities that might also have a significant effect on their heart rate variability right? Um, or impact their ability to do the trial. Right. Um, So I want to preface it with that. Um, Smoking has a very, very bad effect on your heart rate variability. Um, In terms of what we can expect to see for improvement, I haven't looked at the data quite yet, but not too Right, probably um, two to to three um, level improvement, right? So we might see it improved by fifty to one hundred percent. I would say, but again, thinking, keeping in mind that they're starting on a pretty low end. Um, but you know, it it's just it's a tough population, right? And and any improvement we see i'm going to say it's great right because they're not like healthy people where you know when you tell them to concentrate on a puzzle right or you stress them out you're going to see their um heart rate variability drop dramatically and then you're going to see it rebound as soon as they're done doing whatever it is you told them to do right um smokers are characterized by a lot of rigidity as well right we just don't Move moved that much um there's been a lot of wear and tear on their system so you know we're looking for little improvements but but hopefully significant improvements and hopefully um not just statistically but clinically meaningful right
0: so uh so you're talking um you know and and i completely agree any improvement is is a great thing um but um but you're talking in terms of respiratory sinus um, Yeah. you know, how much yeah. we're seeing that swing. Um, yeah. I'm assuming you're measuring RMSSD uh, as well with the, yeah. all this. And, and, yeah. uh, and I, and I should have prefaced with that. Um. And, and for everybody listening, um, there are so many different ways to measure HRV. Um, so there's no, uh, there's no, when you say this is what somebody's HRV is, you could be referring to one right. of you know thirty different metrics. Yeah. Um. So uh, so in terms of RMSSD, as that's you know what our app, um, you know what what we primarily show on there, uh, you know we can see everything else as well. Um, but and what most apps uh, and wearables are going to show is the RMSSD score. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So in terms of an RMSSD score, what is a would you would you know what kind of a difference you're seeing in that, and also, yeah. uh, what are most of the people walking in the door? Because um, I'm imagining that their RMSSD is is quite low, uh, given that their uh, that their RSA is so low.
1: I um, yeah. I'm wondering what can I pull up really quickly to look at, yeah. um, and I think that David's bringing up a really important point. Right, so there are so many ways to think about. Heart rate variability right and and respiratory sinus arrhythmia typically is going to reflect high frequency right and, and people will use them interchangeably but that depends on what the person is doing right when we talk about something like resonance breathing um high frequency goes out the window right because you're pushing all your variability down into a different frequency range right some of the time low frequency which then we're talking about the bear receptor um so you know he's totally right in that a lot of the time um people instead are going to talk about RMSSP, right and i don't want to misspeak so i am going to be agnostic um but next time i come on i will have my data from this study and i'll be able to to say but
0: Oh, well, yes. And, and that would be, uh, that would be awesome. And yeah, I don't want to, uh, yeah, I don't, if that's not um, you know, the, the primary thing that you guys are looking at or concerned with by no means. Um, but yeah, it is, it is so funny, uh, when you get into the HRV world, uh, how everybody's talking and looking at something just slightly different, but so many people, right. We're all referring to it as the, as the same thing here. Um, yeah. so yeah, I, uh, and, and of course, Oh, so I was
1: going to add that there are like acute changes too, right? That you mm-hmm. might be able to immediately see in real time, which I think David is also um, wondering if I have any insight into, right? And then, you know, what we hope for in addition to those acute changes are kind of those long-term um, changes.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, um, and you know, with a smoker, um, you know, if you're able to successfully get somebody to stop smoking... Um, you know, I I I forget off the top of my head, and you and you might know, is it uh seven or ten years that uh that they're considered um, you know, that they've regained their physiology. Um yeah. so at that point, what changes happen, right? You know, I and yeah. what's what does that look like from here to there? But then also you have to factor in that age also drags down HR. So,
1: exactly. <laughs> um, you yeah, know, there's and- a, the physiological effect that David's talking about, we don't actually have data on HRV, right? So there's this right. idea that your your body is that of a non-smoker, your your lungs, right, really is what they're talking about, um, look like that of a non-smoker. Um, but yeah, what does that mean for HRV, right? So what we really want to be able to see is that if we look at folks that are quitting um without the aid of resonance of breathing, right, versus folks that are quitting with the aid of resonance breathing, that we see greater improvements in all of our measures of heart rate variability in the individuals who are basically doing kind of physical therapy on their cardiorespiratory system. That's really how we think of it. Right. So, you know, it's not something that we can do all the time or should be doing all the time. Right. Yes. Um, but regular practice is going to, um, hopefully, um, as physical therapy, right. Improve your cardiorespiratory system.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, there's, um, this, uh, this lady that I was, um, she was, uh, she's out of Amsterdam, I think. Uh, and, uh, and she was uh, teaching me all these things about um, about resonance frequency in one of our meetings and um, and she was telling me she goes she goes, this shouldn't be easy. This is literally exercise for your cardiovascular system. She goes yeah. you should not be looking at this as it should be a relaxing breathing thing. And um, yeah. and you know I was her like you know, almost yelling at me about that because I made the suggestion that, well you know I'm doing a breathing exercise I should feel relaxed you know I, I made a comment like that and it was a it was, no nope. <laughs> absolutely not right um yeah this yeah. is this is hard work this is cardiovascular work um which yeah. is a, a crazy to think right that you can sit there and breathe and literally be doing a cardiovascular exercise uh so it's a it's very cool yeah
1: it makes me think of as you're talking right now that feeling that you get, when you have gone for a long swim, right? Like you don't realize because it's low intensity, um, the impact, right? And then you stop and you're like, wow, <laughs> right? Like I'm actually really kind of relaxed, right? A little bit tired, right? But I'm kind of focused, alert. It, it's a unique feeling for those of you out there who haven't, played around with this. Um, I definitely encourage you to try.
0: You you know, you, you, uh, you bring up a great point with the, with the swimming analogy, uh, because yeah, you don't, uh, you, with that, you lose your cues of, of, uh, of a cardiovascular workout, right? You're not sweating because the pool is taking that away. You don't feel hot because the pool is taking that away. Um, yet you feel this odd exhaustion. Um, yeah, And it's, uh, it's very similar. And for me, uh, you know, a long swim is one length of the pool. Uh, (laughs) that's about all I got. Um, that's, uh, the hardest sport in my opinion, but, um, (laughs) but yeah, no, it it is a very similar thing because you don't have your normal cues, um, yet you still get to a similar point. Uh, so yeah, but, uh, but I don't want to, um, I want to respect your time. I know that we are, we're going over an hour here at this point. Um, so, uh, so let's meet again at the, yeah. uh, after the conclusion of your study. And I, and I would love to hear all about, uh, what, what happened throughout and, um, and then we can, uh, prod a little bit more into, uh, into questions about the outcomes and who followed the therapies who didn't, uh, you know, all of those right. kinds of things. So.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. That sounds great. Yeah, thank well, you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, absolutely.